rumor, a currently circulating story or report of uncertain or questionable truth. This is Rumors of Grace, where I talk to people rumored to have found beauty and truth in broken and uncommon places. Welcome, friends, to another episode of Rumors of Grace. As always, this is Bob Hutchins, and if you're listening to this in the very recent future, it's July, June 5th, 2020. It's a crazy world that we're living in. Lots of things are going on, and we're going to talk to somebody today that's very, very, very interesting to me. Somebody that I've known a long time. Let me put some context to this conversation. I think you're going to enjoy it. My oldest son, Riley, who's 27, one of his best friends is here with me, sitting across the silver table today in Franklin, Tennessee, just outside of Nashville. He's also a Nashville native, or most of his life here in Nashville. But let me give you a little bit of his bio and set up our conversation. His name is Alex Ray. Again, he's 27 as well. He has a bachelor's degree in Chinese and Latin from the University of Mississippi and a master's degree in anthropology from the, I'm going to butcher this, Alex, Qinghai or? Qinghai. Qinghai Qinghai University for Nationalities. His master's thesis was focused on faith healing and exorcism amongst Muslim communities in northwest China. He currently teaches English at the Qinghai University for Nationalities. And he is a polyglot, which is somebody who speaks a lot of languages, right? generous, but thank you. (laughs) He speaks fluent Mandarin Chinese and several languages at a daily conversational level, including Tibetan, Arabic, Japanese. I'm sure there's other things, too. And his interests include martial arts, photography, poetry, philosophy, theology, and comparative religions. Alex, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here. Yeah, I'm really glad you're here, too. It's kind of fun to see, not to be too paternalistic, but I'm very proud of you. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. And to see you grow up from very young in my house to now being, I don't know if you'd consider yourself a resident, but how long have you lived in China? I've been in this current city called Xining roughly five-ish years. I mean, with being home on summer and winter breaks, usually. In total, it's been four or five-ish years if we're going to put all the time together. Mm-hmm. Do you consider that your home? or Yeah, your- my second home. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's it's really become in one of my favorite places, and Xining especially, because it's such a unique place for Westerner, but it's even a unique place for China, for Chinese people. So many times I mentioned to Chinese people, I live in Xining, and they're like, whoa, that's so far away. What are you doing there? Is it up in the north part of China? It's, so it is, okay, so well, the listeners can't see this, but I'm drawing a map on my hand. This, the oval of my hand is China, and the northeast, you've got the big cities, Beijing, down south, you've got Shanghai. Further south, you've got Hong Kong. These are all on the East Coast. And this is the hard part about China is China is, of course, it's a ginormous country, one billion people, but a lot of different ethnic groups. The majority ethnic group is called Han Chinese, and or Han. They make up mm, something like 93% of the population, I think. And so <clears throat> when you think of Chinese culture, well, as an anthropologist, I have to say, we can't really paint with really broad brush strokes, but also as an anthropologist, it's kind of my job to paint with broad brush strokes. But so when we talk about Chinese culture, when 
we you think about the emperors, Kung Fu, the Terracotta Army, the Great Wall, Confucius, Chinese New Year, all of this stuff, generally speaking, we're talking about Han culture. Hmm. And again, the Han in themselves are an incredibly diverse group. We don't have the time to go into that, but if listeners want, I can direct them to further, more detailed resources on this. But generally, we're talking about in that, the, when we're talking about Chinese culture. When you hear Chinese, you're often talking about Han culture. So Xining, if you look at a map, it's geographically right smack dab in the center of China, mm. and it's a small city. It's only two million people, so it's you know not very significant by Chinese standards, and it is the last, quote unquote. Chinese, that is Han cultural city before hmm. you get into Tibetan areas. Which and, is further north? or Well, uh, it's, it's, I'll get to that. The, but I also want to mention it's also a, so there's lots of Tibetans in the city, but there's also, it's also an old Silk Road city. So there's lots of Muslims there, mm-hmm. descendants of old Muslim merchants and whatnot. And so the, the problem about the, the Tibet question is that when people hear Tibet, and they, if you if somebody knows has heard about Tibet and they have a general idea where it is, and you ask them point a map where's Tibet, what they'll point to is a, a province in China called the Tibetan Autonomous Region with its capital in Lhasa. And when you see pictures of Tibet and you see pictures of the Pagoda Palace, that's the city right. of Lhasa. But old Tibet, cultural Tibet, and the Tibetan empires actually extend beyond the mm. Tibetan Autonomous Region. Lhasa and the Tibetan Autonomous region are what are called in Tibetan Waitsung. And this part of Tibet, northeastern Tibet, is called Amdo Tibet. And in fact, it's Xining's only about two hours drive away from where the current Dalai Lama was born. Oh, wow. And about a three hours drive away from where the, the previous Panchen Lama was born. I've been to both those places. And you ended up there because of the university that was there? Or? No. So I ended up there. I did Chinese through the University of Mississippi, their Chinese language flagship program. And part of this program, after we graduated, even though we were graduating, that was school per se, we had this fifth capstone year, they called it, where we did a semester studying abroad at the Nanjing University and then a semester doing an internship. And we all were encouraged to find our own internships. And I, and a lot of people got internships with NGOs, charities, Mm. et cetera. And I was very interested and finding an internship where I could maybe learn another language on the side. Mm. And I had, so I looked for different charities working with different various ethnic minorities. And I finally just settled on one that worked with Tibetans, Tibetan orphans in Xining. And so I went to that and did that internship. The internship itself was kind of a bust, but it gave me the opportunity to get to know Xining, fell in love with the city, found a job teaching English at a cram school there, or what we would call what, what is often translated into Chinese, into English as a cram school, which is like a weekend extra training school for little kids. I met, I ended up not liking it at all. Really terrible conditions. You're teaching classes of students that are 40 to 60 students per class. These kids are way overschooled, way overworked, and they're just tired, and it's just a mess. While I was there, I met someone, a guy named Hannibal, who's now become one of my best friends and was sort of my academic mentor. And if he ever hears this, he'll hate to hear me say that. But, <laughs> and you know, unfortunately for me being the classicist, the having a bachelor's degree in classes, classics, I met him like, oh, do you have any elephants? Unfortunately, most people make, make <laughs> a Silence of the Lambs reference though. But he was taking, he, he knew some people at the university, the Qinghai Nationalities University, and he 
it was, it's all funny. It's, it's so funny how God works, you know. Mm-hmm. I knew I kind of wanted to stick around and be an independent learner, I, but I did not want to go back to school. Mm. I like learning. I don't like forced learning with deadlines. You put a deadline in front of me, you have to learn this thing by this time, I'm out. Mm. I don't want to do it. I had no interest in going to academia or whatnot, but I talked with him a lot about a lot of stuff, and he's brilliant. He He's hitchhiked through Central Asia and, and China, Tibet, and, and India. And where's he from originally? Boston. Oh, well. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And he... So he's American? Does he still he's, he's American. There? He's now at UC Berkeley doing his okay. PhD. Um, but he speaks English, of course, Russian, Chinese, and Tibetan. And he's like... He, and I was talking with him about a lot of the history of this area because he knows everything about this area. And he's like, you'd be a shoo-in for academia. I'm like, eh, I don't know about that. But so he knew that I was really disliking this job, teaching English. And he found that at the this university that they were give, they were accepting applications for this scholarship they for to do a three-year master degree, full tuition plus 3,000 Chinese yuan stipend a month. And he's like, you'd be a shoo-in. Like, one, this would be an easy program because Chinese academia is not super great. And this university is considered a low-ranking university. Plus, like, you could quit your job here. And then you're interested in all these minority cultures. Not only would you be able to learn about them, you'd be taking classes with people from these minority cultures. I wasn't sold at first, but I thought about it. I was like, all right, yeah, I'll do it. And I signed up. Loved it. I've met so many people, had so many experiences mm. that have just completely changed the trajectory of my life. Mm. Yeah, and that's great. Now I'm here, and hopefully I'll be able to go back soon. So let's let's back up just to talk about like what was your upbringing. I know a little bit about it, obviously, but how do you go from being a a kid in in Nashville, Tennessee, growing up in a, a pretty you know common middle to upper middle class home? Mm-hmm to now living and being passionate about China and living mm-hmm. there and being, you know, teaching it. Yeah, no, that's there. a good question. Growing up, well, my parents, my parents were always very encouraging of learning. If mm-hmm. I was interested in something, I wanted to buy a book about this or that topic, especially history stuff. That was really my thing growing up. They were always very encouraging of that. And also my dad, he studied a year abroad in Germany right after mm. high school. And so growing up, I regret it. He tried, growing up, he tried to teach me some German. I didn't really, I wasn't interested as a little kid. I wish I had been more, but we always had German stuff around the house, old souvenirs he picked up. Our family grace that we'd always say before we eat, we normally said it in English, but occasionally we'd say it in German. It was this Lutheran pietist grace, come Lord Jesus, be our guest and let this food to us be blessed. Or in German, Komm Herr Jesus, sei du unser Gast und besegne uns, was du uns geschert hast. Hmm. And so growing up, I was always very aware that there, I mean, Germany is not, it's still Western. It's not that different from American culture, all that stuff. But still, I was aware that there was a wider world. There were other cultures, there were other languages. And then I got interested, I started getting interested in languages in middle school. Anything the more different, the better. The more different was from American culture. Not that I'm saying American culture is bad and other cultures better. No, I'm just saying what my personal interests, my objective interests or subjective interests, if it was the more different from Western culture, the more I was interested. And I was actually very much originally interested in Arabic Hmm. because I was very interested in the script and the calligraphy. I thought it was gorgeous. And then also because, you know, 
I mean, I was in third grade when 9-11 happened, and suddenly the whole world is talking about Islam. Mm. But I realized nobody really knows anything about it. Mm. Uh, I mean, you have all these stereotypes thrown around, and but nobody really knows about it. And you can't, I mean, obviously there are non-Muslim Arabs, but... That's pretty thoughtful reasoning for a third grader. <laughs> she, well, I mean, I thought more about that middle school, high school, but he's, but you can't, so you can't learn Arabic without learning about Islamic culture. Sure. It's, that's impossible. And I was looking at some Arabic textbook during lunch in high school. And this one teacher was like, you know, you should look into Chinese because it's, uh, you know, China's the up and coming superpower and blah, blah, blah. And, and again, it's so funny because i in retrospect, I'm not a very, I'm not a very charismatic person. I've never had you know, a Monty Python, God come out of the clouds, Arthur <laughs> kind of moment. Stop your groveling. But the big giant. Thing. Yeah, exactly. But I'm a very impulsive person. And I'll have sudden changes in impulses that come out of nowhere. And I realized I think that's how God often really talks through to me. Hmm. And in because originally I was not interested in Chinese at all. I thought China was boring and all this stuff. And when he mentioned that, I was like, yeah, whatever. But then I was like, oh, you know what? Whatever. I'll give it a chance. I'll, I picked up a Chinese book and I fell in love. And, and then, so then I decided to go into study Chinese because my original plan was to study Arabic in college, then go be an English teacher in Egypt or someplace. <laughs> um, but then, then go I just, explore the, the pyramids while you're Yeah, there. yeah. But, but this, is, this is the really amazing thing about where I live in Xining is that there was always a part of me that's been really fascinated and really in love with Middle Eastern Arab culture. And there was always this part of me that always thought, what if, what if I had gone that route? And it's still, of course, not exactly the same, but being in contact with Muslims and Muslim culture there, and, and they don't speak Arabic, but there are still Arabic things around. And some of them study Arabic. It's, it's really gotten to come full circle. Mm. These interests have really come that's full cool. circle. And uh, was yeah. it was it so you so you your trajectory was you studied the the Chinese program at the University of Mississippi, mm -hmm. which you know through you I didn't even know that was a thing, but it's one of the premier like Chinese. Studies it's one in of the, country, the right? top Chinese studies programs. Um, the because the language flagship. Um, anybody anybody listening to this podcast who has kids interested in learning languages at school, the language flagship was an initiative started under the Bush administration under the pretense that we do not have enough speakers of strategically critical languages just in just existing in America, not even just like working for the government, just there in America as a pool to pull from. And so there are flagship programs at many universities across the country for Chinese, Persian, Arabic, Korean, and, and whatnot. And there's resources for those too, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, if that's something that is of interest, yeah, yeah. not and a lot of people know about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And these are, these are highly selective and highly intensive programs as well, sure. though. But what's really cool about Ole Miss is Ole Miss is, is actually a recruiting spot for the FBI because of the Chinese flagship, because they also have this very big security studies program, which is like, it's like, you know, pre-med, but it's like pre-FBI. Like if you want to go to the FBI, it's a good program to go to. They also have, we also have this very highly selective international studies program. But what's a really big deal is when I was there, they had an Arabic program going that was, it was not flagship. That means it was not government funded, but it was modeled entirely after, it was like a carbon copy of their Chinese program, but it, for Arabic language. And they were doing this because they wanted to get funding for it as well. 
But that was completely unprecedented. No university in America had two language flagships. Hmm. But a year or two ago, Ole Miss got it. They finally got funding for their Arabic flag oh, for wow. their Arabic flagship so as well. To go back. Yeah, <laughs> honestly, yeah, a little bit. But I did get to take one beginner Arabic course with their teachers there, and that was a lot of fun. But so you so you yeah. you went through that program. You went and visited. Went back and forth to China. And you mm-hmm. ended up, you ended up living there, which I think is fascinating, and we've all got to benefit from photos and pictures and experiences and visiting with you when you come home. So that's amazing. There's a lot of things I want to ask you and talk about. One of the things that, that you have, ever since you were a child, you've loved martial arts. Mm-hmm. You've always, you know, wherever I would hear, my son would come home and say, you know, Alex got a new sword. It's some kind of Japanese, <laughs> like, kata yeah, or... Yeah. Or some kind of Arabic thing, and and you've we've always been fascinated by it. Yeah. But then when you finally went to China, tell us, tell the listeners what yeah. you got to do finally. Yeah. When I got to, I got to say, I got a a big part of this is also thanks to thanks to your son Riley, because one day in at our pool, Riley and some other friends, they were jokingly doing. I don't even know where they had heard of it because I'd never heard of it before. But they were doing some jokingly like pool tai chi and then i was like wait what is tai chi and i looked it up and i was like oh this is fascinating so that was another impulse in my interest <laughs> in china and then all the kung fu movies we watched together but yeah so again martial arts chinese martial arts kung fu generally comes out of the han tradition again han culture chinese culture han culture but there is a certain subset of martial art of kung fu that have largely been transmitted and passed down in muslim families and there's been some highly influential muslim martial artists and also just military men in chinese history some of the more commonly known but not necessarily known as muslim martial arts are like baji tran hmm. um this is really famous because it partly because it's one of the forms that was picked up by the government to standardize and spread across the country. But also, even before the communists, it was it was the standard form that bodyguards for the during the Republican era for the president, hmm. um, they trained in that. And to this day, from what I understand, because the Republican government is now the government in Taiwan, from what I understand, bodyguards there do still generally train in Baji Tran. But this martial art it's we can't say exactly who founded it. The first recorded master of it, it was definitely Muslim, part of the Hui Muslim ethnic group. They make up the largest Muslim ethnic group in China. And so I have um so I was in Xining, right? And I have a friend, a local friend, I usually call him by his Muslim name, Abdullah. And he knows everybody there is to know in the Muslim community. And I I just texted him one day, I was like, you know what? I'm really interested in Kung Fu and I've heard of some Muslim styles of Kung Fu and, you know, could you maybe work your contacts and see if there's anybody that might be willing to train me? And so his father knew a guy who had trained in some Kung Fu and he found me this teacher whom I'm now training with called Ma Hong Chang. I usually just call him Ma Shifu, which was Master Ma, Master Ma. But it's also kind of funny because like, 90% 90% of Hui, their last name is Ma. So mm. Master Ma can refer to just about anybody. But Master Ma, and so, and he's, he's been amazing. I mean, he's the real deal. He looks like he's straight from a kung fu movie. He's how, like, how old is he? This is a good question. <laughs> Time seems to be relative to him. Mm. 
whenever somebody asks him how old he is, he'll give some answers somewhere, usually somewhere between 70 and 75. When people ask him when did he start training Kung Fu, he'll say some, every time it's different, somewhere between like 13 and 18. He's been, but he's essentially been training Kung Fu for like 60 years. And he trains a style, so he's the real deal. So he looks like straight from a Kung Fu movie. He's five feet tall, totally unimposing. He's actually really adorable. He's very smiley and whatnot, but he, I mean, I don't want to be, I know so many people in the martial arts world, especially in McDojo circles are, you know, get really fall into, you know, like sensei worship. And I want to fall into that, but I mean, like, he's really the real deal. Like his strength is outstanding. Like I've, he's done joint locks on me and I just feel helpless. Like Mm -hmm. I've never met a 70 year old with much less, I mean, I don't know, even younger men with that much strength and his speed, his flexibility are outstanding. He once punched my ribs with like maybe 50% of his power, but I could still feel like my lungs collapse and the air forced out of me. The style that he trains in is called Baman Chan, which means the eight gates fist. And this is a, it's what in Chinese is called a defeng chan, a local fist, a local style, meaning it's one of the, the, back in the day before the modern era, every style would have been a defeng chan, would have been a local style, but even before the communists, during the Republican era, there were several styles that were picked up by the government to be standardized and then to be spread across the country. This is not one of those. So it's largely only practiced in northwest of China and like 90% practiced by Hui Muslims. Mm. Very, There are some Han that practice it, There's, but very rarely together. Um, the founder of the style, Chang Shan, was from... Eastern China in the 19th century, and he was a Muslim, but he trained both Muslims and Han Chinese. But their disciples, if Han only trained Han, Muslims only trained Muslims. And this is the thing that I didn't even think about when I started training. In Chinese, they say for martial arts, Bu Wai Chan, you don't teach outsiders. Mm. And generally, that means you don't teach outside of your family, you don't teach outside of your village. Or in the case of Muslims, you don't teach outside of your religion. And I didn't even think about this, though. So but my- you're this tall, blonde American guy from Nashville slash Mississippi coming and asking him to train. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Kung Fu. Well, it's it's funny because I was talking with my friend Abdullah. Christian, not Muslim. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the other, so the funny thing is Ma Shifu, Master Ma, he also doesn't speak Mandarin Chinese. He only speaks the Qinghai dialect, which I've been learning, but it's either still... On a good day, I'll understand 50 to 60% of what he says. Is what, what, what is that a, the equivalent? Like, I'm trying to understand. He's still speaking Chinese, but it's a different dialect. Is it like a like Spanish and French? Or, I mean, yeah, yeah. Like it might be same, close to that. Same Spanish core. and French, yeah, yeah. That, that'd be a good example. If you look at a dialect map, Qinghai mm-hmm. dialect is actually in the same dialect group as Mandarin, but it's maybe 50-60% mutually intelligible. It has its own grammar that's been highly influenced by Mongolian and Tibetan around it. It has its um, own vocab words that don't exist in Mandarin and all this stuff. But hmm. So he was talking with my friend Abdullah who introduced us and I couldn't understand what they're saying because when when he talks to me, he talks slowly, but of course if he's talking with a Qinghai person, it's blah, 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 you know, whatever. And then Abdullah later told me, I don't say this to, you know, to be boastful. I say this because I'm very grateful for this and I didn't even think of this, but he, Abdullah told me that Master Ma told him that I will be his first and last, his only non-Muslim student. 
And I think I, I think I also have Abdullah to thank for this because Abdullah, he's Muslim, he's Chinese Muslim, but he's very liberal. He's very open minded, not like liberal in the Western sense. He's he's very open minded. Is the best way to say. And he 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 even said to Mashrifi because Mashrifi was worried about you know he's not a Muslim. Will he understand some of these things I say? And he's like, and he explained to him that you know like. In Islam, Christians are considered ahla kitab, people of the book, that, you know, they recognize Jesus as a prophet. And so, you know, they're not really that different from us, essentially, is what he tried to explain to him, is that it would be okay. Also, Masharfu, Master Ma told him later that he also probably didn't, th- uh, he, it wasn't a big deal to teach me anyways, because he didn't think I was going to stick to it. He thought I might just, like, learn a couple moves, but then kind of give up after a couple weeks. But he, he's always saying in Chinese, in Chinese, this phrase, to eat the bitter, mm. is very common in martial arts circles. Mm. It means like to bear the hardships, to fight through the pain. Mm. And he's always saying, as long as you can eat the bitter, you'll be okay. And I've been very, I will say I've not been as good as eating the bitter as I could be, mm. as I should be, but I'm really trying to, and I've been mm. really determined. Well, I've, been, I've seen some of the videos. I've seen yeah. the transformation. I've seen the consistency. It's really cool to oh, see. I appreciate that. Yeah, and I've been very lucky in that now I've even met his family. I've been started tutoring his grandchildren in English, and he will pr- will go up to his apartment after we're done practicing, and his wife makes lunch for us, and I eat mm. with his family. And then he also, what's been really, I've been very honored, is he has all these old not old, old, but old documents from like the 80s with all these esoteric Chinese philosophical charts and things. And I mean, to the to the untrained eye, they look like just like witchcraft or something, but they're this esoteric martial arts philosophy stuff. And he hasn't explained them to me yet. Hopefully he will someday. But the fact that I've even been able to see them is a big deal. Normally, um, you don't show them to anyone, even your students. You only show them to your high-ranking students. Mm-hmm. And But I also told them, like, look, these are amazing. These have amazing historical value, but they're also falling apart. Like, let me borrow these and scan these onto my computer. And he's like, yeah, okay. And um, and they're also all handwritten, which handwritten Chinese for me is not very easy to read. So once so I go back... So is it like pressure points or... No, it's a lot of these yin-yang charts and almost like numerology charts Mm. that have to do with understanding the flow of yin and yang in a combat and Mm -hmm. and maybe some pressure points where do you strike this person when i mean it may be a lot of hoodoo and not really useful in a fight but it's still fascinating yeah it is interesting um that's great. So you're yeah. lo- so you're loving that. So absolutely, you're finally, yeah, absolutely doing that. And a couple of things I want to talk about while we have the time is one of the things in addition to the kung fu and the culture and and the anthropology, you and I have several things in common. One of those is a study of of theology, comparative religions, mysticism, and I know that and and I've talked quite a bit about mysticism and talked to a lot of other people over the past almost 60, 60 recordings I've done and. I'd love to hear about your study of that because I've ventured in a little bit. I've dipped my toe in the water and, and some of the, the mystics from, from, from Judaism, from Islam, from Christianity, they all have their mystics. Mm-hmm. And there's, there seems to be mm-hmm. this, this, this deep connection on, on, on mm-hmm. many levels. And mm-hmm. I know you've studied that for some. And it'd be interesting to hear some of your thoughts on, uh, I know that's a big subject, yeah. but just let's, let's just open that a little bit and say, what, what have you studied, what have you experienced living well, in China amongst Muslim people? Yeah. 
being because because you're Roman Catholic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, talk to me about that. Well, so my research, my well, my thesis was not on mysticism per se. It was about I call I term it spooky Islam. It was it was about things like demon possession, exorcism, whatnot, which have mysticism tied in. But I mean, a big part of there's there's of course several different sects of Islam where I live, but there are many. Some of the biggest sects are various different Sufi orders. Remind us again. I read it in the bio. Mm-hmm. What was your thesis on? So, okay, I'll try not to get too academic, but basically, it was on the concept of dua and how dua is understood amongst Muslims in this area. Because so in Arabic. There are two, or in Islam, there are two kinds of prayers. There's salah and dua. In Arabic, it's pronounced dua, but this ayin sound is not easy for me to pronounce, so I'll just do the Chinese pronunciation dua, and any Arabs listening will have to forgive me. Salah is your five times a day prayer. And what it, we think of. of mm-hmm. the... It's ritualized, regimented. There are certain things you have to do and th- certain things you have to say when you do it. Dua is everything else. I usually translate it as supplicatory prayer. The root in dua literally means to call, to call out, to call upon God. And it, so if you're sick, you pray a dua. If you have a test coming up, you pray a dua. And these can be in Arabic, these can be in your own language. And in, in the same way Christians say, I'll pray for you, Muslims say, I'll make dua for you. Mm. Now, there are, there's also a great tradition of certain duas in Arabic that have been passed down, and you can go to Muslim shops and get books of duas, and there'll be duas for every occasion, and there'll be, be in Arabic with translation, whatever the language, local language is, and, and there'll be duas for like, a dua to say right when you wake up, a dua to say when you go to bed, a dua to say before you eat, and even things like a dua to say before you go to the bathroom, and stuff like that. But my research was on, and, and they have this in amongst the Muslims where I live too. You can go to these bookstores and you can get these books of dua that have the Arabic dua and a Chinese translation. But what my research was on was how, was this phenomenon that for most people, when you reference dua, what you're usually actually referencing are prayers for healing from what's called zang bing in Chinese, dirty sicknesses, which are mm. sicknesses caused by demons or jinn. Mm-hmm. Islam doesn't have demons quite like we jinn. do. but And they also have these professional dua prayer, pray, pray, prayer, praying people, um, pray, pray, yeah, <laughs> that they call dua chur in the local dialect. Chur is a Turkic suffix. It's like er in English. A runner is someone who runs, a writer is someone who writes, a duacher is someone who prays dua. And they are, they'll, when you have a dirty sickness, you call a duacher. And so my, my research was particularly inspired by this one article I read by my advisor and a um, professor at the university. And he was talking about, this article was about this one minority Muslim ethnic group in Qinghai called the Salar. And they're, they're very small. They're Turkic people. Um, they speak their own language. There's only about 100,000 of them. This article was about elements of pre-Islamic Turkic shamanism among Salar communities. And towards the end of the article, he mentioned how Salar, some Salar believe that everybody has three souls mm-hmm. and that when you sleep, one of your souls will leave your body and travel around. And that's what you mm-hmm. experience in dreams. And at other times, you know, if you get suddenly startled, 
your soul can leave your body and then it'll get lost and you'll get sick and you have to call a duacher to come and call your soul back. And they have different rituals that involve the Quran because they've become Islamified, but they involve other potentially pre-Islamic Turkic shamanistic rituals. And I was like, this is fascinating. Ever since I was a kid, I've loved spooky ghost stories sure. and whatnot. And so I have a handful of stories I like to tell. The first story is always, I had this one Salar friend that I did an English Salar language exchange with, and he's a very wealthy guy. He started his own construction company. He drives a Mercedes. He keeps his MacBook Air in his Gucci leather bag. And I met with him at our favorite coffee shop for English exchange and English and Salar language exchange, and I showed him my... I showed him the article written by my advisor and I asked him, do you know about Duacher? Like, do the Salar still have these? And he's like, oh yeah, we still have these. They're not as great as they used to be, not as powerful, but we definitely still have them. In fact, I can do these things. And I'm like, what? <laughs> like I was expecting I was going to have to go in the middle of nowhere, wilderness, find some old bearded man in yeah. a cave or something. Um, and he could see the incredulity on my face. And he's like, but you probably don't believe in this stuff. And I'm like, well, you know, we talked, we, I have my own religious beliefs, but for my research, it doesn't matter what I believe. For my research, I'm interested in what you guys believe. I can't prove whether it's true or not, but that doesn't matter. What matters is what you guys believe is true and how that affects your lives. That's what's important for my thesis. And so we continue with our language change and we set another date for a more formal interview. And then at the interview, we're talking and I ask him, you know, so how did you learn to become a duacher? And he said he had two teachers. One was a 40-year-old Salar woman, and one was a 285-year-old Iraqi man. <laughs> and I'm like, And I think, well, yeah, and it's obvious he's kind of testing how willing I am to listen to this because he's not giving me all the details. Right. And I just, I just write down, and I'm, I'm just like, okay, whatever, write it down. Uh, and I even ask him, like, you know, could I, is he here in Sheening? Could I meet him sometimes? Like, he travels a lot, but you might be able to meet him. But he's 285 years old. Yes. Well, eventually it he does finally reveal to me that as a, through the course of the conversation, the reason he's 285 years old, well, he's, he's okay. So he's never actually seen the person face to face. And this has to do with the fact that he's 285 years old because he, he's dead. He's a wandering spirit uh. that teaches him in his dreams. And of course it's very spooky and all that, but this trope is very common in Islam and especially in central Asian Sufi circles because Many of the prophets, including Muhammad, received revelations in dreams. You have plenty of legends of people receiving special knowledge, special education through dreams, either from prophets, saints, angels, what have you. So it's like spirit guides. Yeah, sort mm -hmm. of, yeah. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so, I mean, there's, and there's more about that. Another story I like to tell, I met another Aduwatcher guy who, he... <laughs> He's a sh another short, I don't know, maybe five foot tall, very rotund Muslim man, and but he's almost like a ghostbuster. He like he carried <laughs> various charms and stuff with him at all times. And and when I would do my interviews, I would usually often ask, you know, what is what do you understand dua to be? What is dua? And he explained that there are six thousand six hundred and sixty six verses of the Quran, which I'm not entirely sure if that's exactly how it's counted, but whatever. That's what he said. And some of these verses can be used as dua. That is, they can be used to treat certain dirty sicknesses. And different. they also involve different rituals depending on the sickness. 
And so some of them can be as simple as praying a dua over some water or food and in consuming it, or they can be more complex. And he explained, for instance, if you have a if you have a toothache caused by a demon, what you do is he will write the first three letters of the Arabic alphabet on the wall, Aleph Ba'ata. And then he'll pray the dua over you, the sick person, and you will then put one hand on your sick tooth and then the other hand on the first letter of the Arabic alphabet, Aleph. And then he will take a small nail and hammer and lightly tap at the hurt tooth. And if the dua works, the pain should slowly go away. If it doesn't work, you put your hand on the next letter and they try again and it still doesn't work the next letter. He says, theoretically, you could go through the entire Arabic alphabet before it works, but generally you don't have to go past the first three letters. He even explained, we even talked about how there is such thing as black dua, harmful dua, which exists, but it's not, it's considered sinful. It's not a good thing to do. And he explained how his his teacher's teacher, the guy who that he learned du- to be, how to be a duacher from, his teacher's teacher back in the day, I, I should have gotten a date for him for some reason I didn't ask, but I'm assuming this would be maybe in the 50s or 60s. He said there was some Communist Party secretary that was causing a lot of trouble in their village and everybody hated him. He didn't go into specifics. He just said they, he was bad at the village. and But he had this horse that he really loved and he would go riding every day. And so his teacher's teacher, this duacher's teacher's teacher, wrote some black dua on a rock and put it in the stable of the horse, and the horse died. Stuff wow. like that. Another story I love to tell, my, one of my friends, he's Muslim. He comes from north part of Qinghai in a mixed Muslim-Tibetan community. And, of course, the Tibetans are Buddhist. And they, the Muslims, Tibetans live side by side, but generally the Tibetans can speak Chinese in Tibetan. The Muslims generally just speak Chinese. And so he has this relative of his who's actually been like evidently been possessed like twice. And then her mm. sons have been possessed once. And they talk about it very nonchalantly because right, right. they live in they live in this incredibly magical world that you would never know if you're not talking about the stuff with them. But he's so this distant relative of his. She's Muslim, doesn't speak a word of, of Tibetan. One day she started speaking fluent Tibetan. I was like, what gives? What is this? And they figured she must have been possessed by a Tibetan demon. Mm-hmm. And so they get their, their Muslim clergyman, their imam, to come over and try to see if he can exercise the demon. He can't because he can't figure out what the demon wants because he doesn't speak Tibetan, so he can't communicate with the demon. And so even though this is actually forbidden by Islam, they have to call in a a Tibetan Buddhist monk from the local monastery to come in, talk to the demon, and figure out what the demon wants. Wow! And the demon tells the monk that a relative of hers recently bought a house and in the garden, the previous owner of this house had buried a Buddhist statue from Lhasa, the, the, the holy city of Tibet. And the demon wanted that Buddhist statue unburied and given to the monastery. Mm. And uh, so they dug around the garden, sure enough, found the Buddhist statue, gave it to the monastery, and the demon left. Mm. And I mean, I wasn't there. Can I say, did this really <laughs> happen or not? That's fascinating. But, I, but my friend and his family... They all swear it was true. So that's you know, fascinating. Yeah. What What have you learned? Like, I I, I mean, this we could have a four hour conversation. Yeah, but if you could like sum it up into maybe a couple of 
of bullet points of saying, you know, I grew up, grew up here in Nashville, had a great upbringing, always dreamed of, of going around the world. Now that I've done it and lived in China and lived, work with, being trained by, and developing deep friendships and relationships, how have you changed individually, say, in the last four or five years? Oh, boy. Yeah. Um, I don't even know, man. That's hard, hard to say. I've definitely really appreciated living where I live. I like to say, you know, I'm, I'm a sucker for old-fashioned, potentially politically incorrect Christian language. I like to say that I live amongst the pagans. But <laughs> because this, well, this gets into, you know, the other question about, you know, commonalities in various religions. And even some of the early church fathers who were more mystical, too, yeah, would, say, yeah. would say things like this. And, and also, but something that has been stressed a bit more since Vatican II is that while we do believe that Christianity is the fullness of the faith, we believe that most all religions, at least this is how I express it. I don't know if I've heard any church document say it exactly like this, so I don't want to say I'm speaking for the Catholic Church. But as far as I understand, you know, I believe that all, most all major religions come out of a genuine search for the truth because, you know, Scripture tells us, you know, God desires that all men be saved and God calls to us in our hearts. And this is why certain religions may have bits and pieces of the truth, but they ultimately fall short without the revelation, God's final revelation, fullest revelation, that being the Logos incarnate, the God-man incarnate. And I think, especially if you want to be an evangelist, then you have to know something about what these other people believe. And in its Good and it can be edifying to yourself to mm. see what is good and true and beautiful in these other faiths. Mm. And so the other thing, personally, for what I've learned, I don't know. I mean, because so these true and these good, true and beautiful things that are in these other religions also exist in Christianity, of course. It's just sometimes it's easier to kind of miss them when you've been hearing them all your life. It's sometimes good to hear in a different perspective. And so especially from Muslims specifically, because most of my friends in Sheening, whether Chinese or the foreign students, because there's a lot of foreign students at the university and they're nearly all Muslims. My previous my previous uh, roommate when I was living in the dorm was from Yemen. And Muslims are some of the nicest people I've ever met. And it kills me every time I see people on Facebook saying, Muslims hate our freedom and they want to put us under Sharia law. Herp derp derp. Right. Right. I mean, I lived with a Muslim for two years, and five times a day he did his prayers right next to my bed. The only thing I was scared of was gaining weight because he and the other Muslims would not let me, would not stop forcing me to eat. Anytime <laughs> they cooked, like, oh, yes, you are my brother. You must eat. No, you are so skinny. Please eat. Yeah, right, right. They, and yeah, so, but something I really appreciate about Muslims besides their hospitality is their really strong belief in the providence of God. Mm. Now, there's this whole debate. Do Christians and Muslims worship the same God? I just want you to settle something okay. for me, because it's driven me nuts for years. Sure, sure. The The Arabic word for God mm. is... Allah. Allah. The Christians who are Arabic use what word for God? Allah. Okay, so when people say, you know, they get offended by, and they call the Muslim God Allah... That's just the Arabic word for the word God. Well, yeah, right? it's it's a contraction. God with a little g is Allah. 
Allah is a contraction of Al Illah, which means the God. Right. So yeah, it's it's and it's and, just an Arabic word. Yeah, and there were Arabic speaking Christians and Arabic speaking Jews before Islam came along, and they probably would have also used the word Allah or something like it. Maybe Al Illah. I think that's an important yeah. for most Americans to understand when 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 they say. Allah, they're not talking about this weird mm-hmm. God that's different from ours. They're just saying God, yeah, as yeah. we would say God. Now yeah. you can you can get into the yeah. the details of that, but oh, do you want me to talk about? No, that? no, no, no. Uh, I don't want you to. Get into okay, okay, yeah, yeah, I want yeah, you yeah. To so, continue. Okay, your conversation. so yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so anywho, but something I really appreciate appreciate is their prov their really strong belief in the providence of God. Part of this is the fact that Islam, generally speaking, is very heavy has very strong beliefs in predestination, depending mm-hmm. on your sect. Which I don't believe in such hard predestination. I mean, it sometimes can get even more strong than you know, like the really hardcore Calvinists. Calvinist. But but still, whenever, especially whenever they're talking about the future, future plans, whatnot, they're pretty much you pretty much always tag on, inshallah, God willing, mm-hmm. we'll do this, God willing. And something I find really beautiful is when somebody dies, the the sort of ritual comfort words you say, like we say, you know, rest in peace, requiescat in pace. They say. Inna lillahi wa inna lehi rajun. We belong to God, and to Him do we return. Hmm. And I, I love that. I think that's a really amazing sentiment. And that's something I really appreciate seeing in Muslims, and especially even because, like my 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 roommate Ahmed, and I think this comes from his faith. He is just the happiest guy all hmm. the time. Nothing ever upsets him. And even though his country is going through a terribly brutal civil war and famine and plague, he's just the happiest mm. guy. Mm. And he's always saying, oh, you must come to my village. When I get married, you must come to my village. <laughs> like, Ahmed, isn't like your country going through a terrible civil war right now? He's like, yes, but it used to be much worse. In my village, it used to be boom, boom, boom. Mm-hmm. Now it is just boom. Boom, boom. <laughs> but like, really, he's just the happiest guy. That's and so, brilliant. but then I have plenty, of course, plenty of Buddhist friends as well, because the Tibetans everywhere, mm. over 93, nine, maybe more than that, 99% Buddhist. Something I appreciate about Buddhists is their really strong belief in the idea of impermanence mm. and remembering that this life is passing mm. and not to get attached to these things of this life. And and it's it's helped me because I've always loved. Unfortunately, this is not so popular nowadays. But even Christianity has this long tradition of you know memento mori, remember you will die, and the the totentanz dance macabre, the dance of death artwork, which I love. I don't know if you've seen you know like the famous Ingmar Bergman movie yes. Seven Seal, and like it has a lot of allusions to that and whatnot. I love that, and that's coming back into style now a little bit in some circles. But the Tibetans stuff like that is everywhere, mm. and and some it's kind of frightens some Westerners. They'll see you know Tibetan Buddhist temples with a bunch of skeletons and whatnot. And, and can you think, cl- can you clarify Buddhism a little bit because I I know that there's different kind of mm-hmm. uh, ways to look and practice Buddhism. But for for many of us, mm-hmm. we have this idea of, you know, these guys that live in, you know, these temples, mm-hmm, or they mm-hmm, practice mm-hmm. Kung Fu, or then yeah. you see, like, the Buddha. But but it's more of a, a lifestyle practice and less of a religion, or explain well, that. Explain yeah, that. That's, that's, that's... So it depends entirely on how you define religion. Mm-hmm. And anthropologists and religious studies people, they argue this all the time. If most people, I think most lay people would 
define religion as the belief and worship of some sort of supernatural being or force. And if that's how we're defining it, then yes, for the vast majority of Asian Buddhists, whether Tibetan, Chinese, Thai, whatever, it's a religion. Absolutely. And especially because especially a big thing in Buddhism is Buddhism, what catches people up is Buddhism, as one of my friends put it, Buddhism is atheistic with a with a big A, but not a little A. In Buddhism, there is no single prime mover creator God. Right. But Buddhism believes in six levels of existence. You have hell beings, hungry ghosts, animals, humans, demigods, and gods. And um, the gods live for immense, immense periods of times and are immensely powerful, but they will event once their karma runs out, they will eventually die and they will be reincarnated in lower birth. And you, if you have the right karma and the right intentions, then you can um, even be born as a god. But in Buddhism, the best birth to have is actually human birth because only humans can achieve enlightenment. Mm-hmm. And so in Tibetan Buddhism especially, well, because the other thing is, because of this, when Buddhism comes to a new place, they are able to adopt the gods there and say, okay, that's fine. You can keep your gods. Just remember, they're eventually going to die sometime. And they can just become Dharma protectors. They can be become protectors of Buddhism. And that's a big thing. So especially in Tibet, mountain gods are huge. And most of these mountain gods worship predates the entry mm-hmm. of Buddhism. It just Buddhism came along and then the Buddhist monks entered into tantric combat with the with the mountain gods and converted them to Buddhism. But what's really fascinating, because there's this other religion native to Tibet called Bern, and Bern is a really hard religion to define. But the really funny thing is there's sometimes arguments about which religion, which mountain god follows. Is that mountain god Buddhist or is he Bern? <laughs> and this is a completely foreign concept to Westerners that a god, that for us, religion is the worship of a god. The idea that a god themselves can have their own religion is mind-blowing. <laughs> they take it to the next level. <laughs> yeah, and as for, you know, when we talk about things in the West, Buddhism, as it's practiced in the West, would be largely unrecognizable, I think, to most Asian Buddhists. I think, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but I'm not a Buddhist. I don't have a dog in the fight. But I would argue, from what I've read of Buddhism, that you could make a very strong Buddhist argument that that doesn't necessarily make it wrong. But we can get that later. So, oh shoot, what was I going to say? Mountain gods, Tibetan Buddhists. Oh yeah, okay. So, you know, the idea of monks and searching for enlightenment, all that. The vast majority of Tibetans, especially the lay people are not concerned with enlightenment in this life. Mm-hmm. And in fact, they don't know much of the doctrine. Sometimes there's four main schools of Tibetan Buddhism and there are different ones and different that are more prominent in different areas. And I'll ask some of my Tibetan friends like, oh, in your village, what school are you? And they get embarrassed because they don't know. Because mm-hmm. for lay people, that's not a big deal. Enlightenment and all the stuff is kind of what the monks focus on and maybe not even all the monks. For lay people, it's about gaining karma making sure the mountain gods aren't mad at you so they don't make your life bad, and then hopefully get enough karma that maybe in your next life you'll be in a position suitable for attaining enlightenment. Mm. Interesting. And, oh, shoot, 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 shoot. I need to be keeping notes because there's another story I was going to mention. It's okay. We'll come back to it. Yeah. 
There's one other thing I did want to cover because this has been a fascinating conversation is kind of get into kind of shift gears now and get into what's going on in our country, but less about some of the, you know, racial politics, Mm -hmm. but kind of take it a step further and, and be like, okay, you're in China. There's a lot of, there's, as Americans, as good Americans, we see China as communist, as the enemy, as, Mm -hmm. you know, there are trade partners, but we want to try to beat them the best that we can, which is ironic because we all live off of Chinese everything. everything. Mm -hmm. But we also know that China itself is a communist nation. We do know that there is propaganda that's Mm -hmm. a real thing. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So in your experience as an American going there, how can you kind of compare... Like what you've seen, learned, what's false, what's true in the, in the context yeah. of Chinese propaganda versus what we're going through in the current times yeah. in the U.S. when we're trying to parse through even our own country, what's true, what's false. We're becoming a police state. We're not a police state. Mm-hmm. We want to arm ourselves. We don't. Yeah. Like, like it seems like propaganda with the yeah, media yeah, is absolutely. coming at it all sides. So mm-hmm. I'd love to hear from your perspective. Well, it's all as everything is. <laughs> It, as an, in anthropologist terms, it's all very complicated. In layman terms, it's a huge mess. <laughs> it's all I, fake news. Yeah, it's all <laughs> fake news, right? Well, it's, this discussion is very timely because, you know, yesterday was uh, the anniversary of Tiananmen, yes. um, June 4th. And I love the uh, that Simpsons bit where they go to Beijing and at Tiananmen Square, there's this big memorial plaque and it says, Tiananmen Square, 1984, or 1989, absolutely nothing happened. <laughs> But, well, first, you know, so first about race relations, you know, as one thing, Xining, mostly Han, but Muslims and Tibetans, race relations are pretty rough. I mean, people are generally, are generally, they're polite enough interacting in public, but, you know, Han and Tibetans don't really like each other that much. They both hate Muslims. Muslims tend to be apathetic to Han or Tibetans. They just figure they're unbelievers and they're going to hell, so they're going to get what's going to what's coming to them anyways. So, hmm. and this is the especially Tibetans. Tibetans where I live really do not like Muslims, and part of this is due to the fact that in the early 1900s there was a Muslim warlord called Mabufang whose capital was in Xining, and he killed a bunch of Tibetans. Hmm. But and you'll talk to Tibetans, they do not like Muslims. But they will eat their food because they think it's cleaner than even than even Han or even Tibetan food. Hmm. Um, and then and the Han they have a saying they say uh, you can eat their food but you can't listen to what they're saying because they're going to lie to you they're going to trick you they're all dishonest. And what's really ironic with the Tibetans is Buddhism ostensibly is supposed to be a vegetarian religion you're not supposed to kill living things in on the tibetan plateau that's just unrealistic when so many people are living above the tree line and you can hardly grow anything if you weren't eating meat you're cutting out a huge amount of calories now there are some tibetans they'll just wait for and especially so many tibetans are nomads they keep yaks they keep sheep some areas they may just have to wait for a an animal to just die naturally some of them will straight up slaughter the animals but oftentimes they will buy they'll sell their stuff to the muslims then buy it back from the muslims but then they'll say those muslims are going to hell because they killed the yaks Hmm. and it's it's just it's crazy but so there's that and in terms of propaganda china's been at a turning point these past 10-ish years past Hmm. decade with this new president xi jinping 
who has been the most totalitarian leader since Mao Zedong. Before that, a lot of stuff was really, I mean, it was still communist, you know, but it was a lot more laissez-faire than it was now. And there's a lot that can be said about that. The stuff that I'm mostly focusing on is about religion. And um, the CCP is not listening to this podcast, right? <laughs> right. Let's hope, so. Let's hope so. So one big thing is, of course, it was under Xi Jinping that you started having the crackdowns on the Uyghur Muslims in Xinjiang. Mm-hmm. Th- those conflicts there were more of a nationalistic cultural thing, but the Chinese government spun it as a fight against Islamic extremism because that was a lot easier to sell to the public and sell to the world. But even since then, you've been seeing bigger crackdowns. I've been seeing bigger crackdowns on Muslims, especially where I live. I well, rem- we've seen stories of actually like prison camps. Well, yeah, well, that's in Xinjiang, especially. Xinjiang is a story in and of itself that I think it's tied to this other stuff, but it also sometimes kind of needs to be talked about mm. separately. Because there's there are, I mean, there's prison camps everywhere. It's not, there's, but people still can go to the mosque where I live. And even just last year, every year during Ramadan in Xining, on the last day of Ramadan, which is a big high holy day in Islam, they have to block off squares around the uh, mosque because there are literally thousands of people coming out for the prayers and they have to divert traffic because they're overflowing to the streets. And the government does this every year. They didn't this year because of COVID. But, but I've seen things like, I remember... At the biggest mosque, the Dongguan Mosque, they have this market next to it where you can buy, you know, Middle Eastern clothing, you can buy henna, you can buy perfume, whatnot, and a lot of just general Muslim stuff. You used to also be able to buy a lot of books, and there's nothing problematic. They were, you know, you had you had Qurans, you had basic Islamic knowledge primers, and I would often go there to browse the books and talk to people. But all of a sudden in 2017, boom, they weren't allowed to do that anymore. Hmm. Now, to be completely fair, I'm not, I'm not trying to justify what was done because you know, I'm very pro-free speech and everything. But to be fair, according to Chinese law, what they were doing was illegal. They had, it just had been very tolerated for a long time because according to Chinese law, if you want to sell books, you have to have a book selling license and you have to sell books that have gone through the censor. None of these people had bookselling license and so many other books had obviously never gone through censors. They weren't problematic, but they never gone through censors. Some of them were just obvious, cheap. Somebody had brought a PDF to a print shop and had a, a bunch of copies printed off there and they were selling them. Mm-hmm. But suddenly that stopped. Then suddenly you saw things like Arabic. There was a lot of Arabic signs getting removed from mosques and whatnot. And then a couple years ago, the president of the Islamic Association had this big speech where he talked about the need for the sinification, the making making Chinese, making Islam more Chinese. Because in the past couple of years, past couple of decades, you've also seen a lot of mosques. Mosques, of course, were traditionally built in more traditional Chinese architecture, but you started seeing more mosques in more Arab-style architecture. And this has been a, a big move of just general sinification of religion in general, particularly Islam and Christianity, because those are the only two foreign religions that are allowed to be practiced in China. And so you've seen this, it's come in waves. The other problem with China is China is not, it's huge and it's not nearly as centralized as people want to think. Mm. What normally happens is Beijing comes up with some grand 
sort of vague plan, and it's up to the local officials to decide how they want to interpret that, and that depends on how lazy they are, how much they mm. want to impress their people above them. And so in some places, it's not a big deal. So so our Western or American vision of, you know, these Chinese soldiers that all look the same, that institute this across the whole country at the same time, that's not true. No, that's that's just a collective memory from the culture revolution, which also itself was not so centralized, but it, I mean, it was a lot greater scale and was more uniform, but it's still very different situation. So each province mm-hmm. in, in, or is responsible for carrying out whatever yeah, is yeah. said, but you're saying it's also, they can interpret it differently. Yeah, yeah. So like, so one of the big things, uh, of course, it depends on everything, but one of the big things in the sinification of Islam was stop making Arab architecture mosques. And so some places just kind of interpreted that as, okay, we won't make any more. Others were like, okay. Tear them down. (laughs) Yeah, well, they weren't, thankfully, some of them were tearing them, I think some of them were tearing them completely. Most of the time it was just taking off the domes and then putting, replacing them with more Chinese-style roofing. And then you get this weird sort of science (laughs) fiction-looking mosque. And that happened in waves. It didn't happen immediately everywhere. Mm. It's only now, one of my friends in Sheening, like Sheening has been the last to receive any of this. It's only this, because this campaign started a couple years ago and I've seen videos from various parts of the country. It only just now started in Sheening. And there was, what was a big deal was a couple years ago, two or three years ago, right when this started, there's this gigantic new mosque, a gorgeous mosque built like in 2010 in the city called Weizhou. And the the cranes, the government cranes, came to tear down the dome, and the people came out and blocked their way. Hundreds of people came out, and so the government was like, "Okay, fine, we won't do it." But then what they did once they all had dispersed was they came by a couple weeks later. They went like door to door and essentially forced the people to sign a thing that said, "Yes, I will willingly allow the mosque to be renovated to look more Chinese." And wow. yeah, so stuff like that. And because uh, it's that you've also seen crackdowns on movements related to Wahhabism, which is Wahhabism is a, really a pejorative term, but it's usually the reference to the school of Islamic thought that's propagated by Saudi Arabia. Mm. And it is also, I'm not saying all Wahhabis are, you know, violent, but statistically, the terrorist movements, whether Al-Qaeda, ISIS, whatnot, have grown out of Wahhabi movements. And so the Chinese government has been active against fighting against that. And they they see this link of Arabic architecture tied to that, although there are plenty of non-Wahhabis that have this Arabic architecture. What's really funny is so many of these, some of the the more recent Arab-style mosques are really pretty. Some of the older ones built in the 90s are so ugly. But it's like, I was talking with one of my friends who's a, who does research in China, and we're both like, man, the whole worst part about this is that like, they're making me actually care about these mosques that I hate, these terribly ugly mosques. But because like, I don't like them, but it's what the people want, and I hate the government intervening in that. That's hilarious. And so it's, so it's a similar thing. You've also seen this with Christianity. I know on Facebook, there a couple years ago, there was a big deal with the arrest and closing down of the early rain, autumn rain. I can't remember this this church in Chengdu. It, I saw it a lot in you know our circle of friends because this church 
they were a, conf- a confessional Calvinist Reformed church. They And theirs was a very interesting case as well because they very obstinately never registered with the government. Because so, according to Chinese law, there are five state-recognized religions. There's Buddhism, Taoism, Islam, Catholic Christianity, and Protestant Christianity. And Protestant Christianity only has one denomination. It's not like all of in America. And so if you want to have a religious gathering, it has to be at a state-registered religious building that is registered with one of those, the organization that heads one of those five religions. This church, Early Rain, Autumn Rain, whatever they're called in Chengdu, they very obstinately did not sign up for that. And they obstinately did not register. And the the Chinese government in Chengdu, because again, it's not uniform, in Chengdu just kind of tried to stop them at first, but they began to tolerate them. And what they would do was like, they would just have to write down the name and phone number of every person who comes to their worship services. And then a policeman would come by and pick it up. Finally, that church was closed down and arrested. And it's off, all, all, and the, the leader was arrested and other people were arrested. And obviously that's terrible, great infringement of human rights. But then I see people on Facebook saying, Christianity has become illegal in China. The churches are getting closed, blah, blah. And I mean, like, Yes, that's happening in some places, but most state-registered churches are still open. But of course, then if they're state-registered, people think that they're not they're, real. They're, yeah, they're, they're not real. They're puppets by the government, and that's not really true either. I attend a state-registered Catholic church in Sheening, and I mean, it's like going to mass here. I mean, the homily. If they started preaching about political, it's more about what you can't say. If right. they started preaching about political stuff, then sure, there'd be a problem. But I mean. It's normally always just reflections on the gospel and the scriptures and how to be a better Christian. It's nothing controversial, and so that's fine. And so, and so, taking all that and what you've experienced and seeing it from that perspective, I mean, what is your opinion on what's happening? You know, in our media and with what's going on with COVID, what's going on with race riots? What yeah. I mean, is there is do you make connections and correlations and is it uh, allowed you to see things maybe that the average American doesn't see? I mean, yes and no. I mean, you know, I wish like everybody, I wish I had like a silver bullet excla- sure. explanation that could save everyone, right? The only thing I've really gotten out of this, well, I've gotten two things. One, because I, I remember during Trump's campaign, first time around, there are people talking to Facebook about the need to illegalize, you know, hate speech completely. So like not allowing people who openly identify as Nazis to speak and all this stuff. And I'm like, yeah, I understand that sentiment. And I do not support Nazi ideology in the least. But I live in a place where I have seen where the government has been given the power to Mm. decide what is true, what is not what you can listen to and what it can't. And I have seen firsthand with my own eyes how that hurts people. I'm like, that's a dangerous path to go down. And I realize the Nazi hate speech hurts people too, but giving the government that power I think is terribly dangerous. And and especially when it comes to Nazis, I mean, I'd rather have them out in the open and know who they are than have them, you know, running around in secret. The only thing that I can think of is that something I've been thinking about a lot as I've been reading about Catholic social justice ideas is the Catholic church has for a long time, a lot of people don't know this, the Catholic church, because this also ties into topics of, you know, capitalism and socialism, all this stuff. Sure. The Catholic church for a long time has been critical of capitalism since the term was first coined in the 19th century. Pope 
Leo the 13th wrote this encyclical called De Rerum Novarum on the new things. And it's a critique of both capitalism and communism. And it became the foundation for modern Catholic social thinking. And one of the big things in Catholic social thinking is that is the idea of subsidiarianism is the mm. term they coined, meaning that problems should best be solved by people locally on the ground. Mm. And only as a final recourse should the federal government step in. And I think the a big problem with America is that America's huge. And for some reason, we have put so much emphasis on on the president and the power of the mm. federal government as if it's the as if he's the dictator as if he's you know our great leader whether it's Trump or Obama or this or that person that makes all the decisions and micromanages everything and fix everything then no that's not the case um something this is where i'm going to i'm going to say this i'm going to sound this if you misunderstand me it can make me sound like a right wing nut job and i do not mean this way at all so hopefully i can I can um, explain myself clearly. Before the Civil War, people really had a much stronger identity of identifying with their state. Right. And people don't necessarily think about this nowadays. That's what state meant. State meant country. Mm. And even when when we started making driver's license licenses, you see this language in the laws that the driver's license would become the United States passport. Hmm. You could use that as your interstate identity. They use this term passport, right? And um, obviously, I think, you know, federal, I, of course, there's problems, but was Abraham Lincoln really interested in any slavery? No. But anywho, the abolition of slavery would be a good example of a, t a moment when federal intervention was justified and was good. Slavery had to end. This is where I'm going to sound maybe like a right wing nut job, is that a lot of people, a lot of Southerners say, you know, Civil War wasn't about slavery; it was about state rights. And I think there's a little bit of a grain of truth in that. Mm -hmm. And the after the Civil War, we began to lose this identity of real loyalty to your state. And, and I use the example of Robert E. Lee. Because, you know, he was asked by Abraham Lincoln to be general for the Union. And he wanted to wait to see what Virginia would do because he didn't want to follow, fight against his fellow statesmen, his fellow countrymen. And again, slavery had to end. Federal intervention was necessary. Yes. But I think this losing of this state identity and loyalty to our local community mm. is a big problem. And it ties into this Catholic idea of subsidiarianism that we best can solve our problems on the local level. Mm. And especially in the instance of racism, and I realize I'm a white guy, I have not experienced racism, I have white privilege, all that stuff. But I think the hard thing for a lot of white people in grasping things like white privilege and systemic racism is that systemic racism... <sighs> is something of a nebulous and abstract concept and it can i believe there is such a thing as systemic racism but it can look differently and take different forms depending where you are right systemic racism in new york is going to be different than it is in orlando and it's going to be different than it is 
in Portland or in Los Angeles. And so trying to work from the federal level top down and trying to fix these problems is not the right way to go about this. If we can look at our local communities, look at the immediate problems, what's happening here, and go from the that's good. Roots up, but but the because the other thing is, what was I going to say? Well, this 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 is interesting that you that you're saying this because it it has to be driven by what you've learned and seen in a country like China, mm-hmm. where the provinces are able to to maintain their own mm-hmm. unique identities mm-hmm. and their own way of life mm-hmm. and their own cultures, yeah. which. We still have that here in the States, but not as much anymore. Exactly. And I, and I say this as an anthropologist. If there's anything I've learned as an anthropologist, it's that people are outrageously complicated and far more diverse than we can ever imagine. Just little communities, like, because that was part of my thesis was I took a very small sample of a very small Muslim community on the border of the Muslim world and they and I only took one idea in Islam, this idea of dua, and all these people had so many different understandings of what it is mm. and how it works. And, and so, you, you, so you take a big idea, yeah, <laughs> and in, multiply that, yeah. And so, and then ultimately, I do think, you know, another unfortunate thing is. So again, maybe it might sound like a right wing nut job. Which pope was it? I can't remember. Early 1900s pope. He wrote this thing called the Syllabus of Errors. And it's been a very controversial document. And people argue about, is it magisterial teaching? Is it dogmatic? Is it not? Blah, blah, blah. It's not dogmatic as far as I understand. It's not necessarily magisterial teaching. But it's a very good document. And one of of the things, there are things, particularly modern ideas, that he lists as errors. And one of these is the separation of church and state. Mm. But what he doesn't mean that in the sense of the original constitutional American idea of separation of church and state that America, that the government should not put laws on regards to religion or that he, or that he's not also not saying that theocracy is a good form of government. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that we, and this is what I've seen now in America, we've come to a place where you can have your religion and you can have your faith, but you have to keep it private. And you cannot, you cannot allow it to form your conscience and to form your political opinions. Mm. And I think that's wrong too. And I think Christians, I mean, in America, we're still pretty open about Christian and politics, Christianity sure. politics, of course. Almost but, too much at times. Yeah, yeah, it's true. It's true. But there, there can also be times where People just want to say, oh, you just believe that just because you're a Christian. And I'm like, well, yeah, but that doesn't that doesn't make it invalid. Sure. Like there's logical reasoning. People hear religion and they automatically assume it's just blind faith for no good reason. Like there's a reason I believe these things, and there's the reason that it has shaped me and that I find these things logical and right and sure. true. And it would make sense that that would then for my political opinions. And I think we've, in some ways, we in some ways are still very vocal about our religious opinions and politics, but sometimes we can also be too scared. And ultimately, you know, the most... So when it comes down to the racism issue or any issue is, is you know, it needs to start locally. It needs to start mm-hmm. grassroots. And what's the most grassroots movement of all is yourself, is your own heart. 
are you trying to repent and are you trying to change yourself? Mm, that's good. And that's why I love some news article about some some nuns going uh, on some protests. They were they were spray painting over some boarded up windows of you know God is love, you know mm-hmm. repent and seek forgiveness, all this stuff. Because and because people don't really realize that even we say that all the time even if you're a christian you say that oh we need to do this it's so easy to forget yes and especially this is something that i've you know because you know i'm a catholic convert something that i've that's been hard for me to understand but something that i've loved in becoming catholic and this is something i was thinking about when i was listening to one of your other podcasts is that Catholic and Orthodox, but not so much Protestant Christianity, has this theology of suffering. Mm -hmm. And we, for Catholics especially, I can't speak too much for the Eastern Christians, but for Catholics especially, suffering is tied to penance. And we, and penance is a hard thing. And I mean, and I say this, I I don't mean to say this in a, because you know me, I I have been, I I can come across as a know-it-all. I am a know-it-all. I can come across preachy, but I say this as someone who was raised at a Presbyterian school and raised in a in an Episcopal family and raised in a very in the Bible, but in Protestant tradition, penance is a very hard thing for Protestants to understand. And I think, but I think this concept of penance can be something in helping to heal mm. our society because. So for Catholics, we believe that sin incurs two kinds of punishments, an eternal punishment and a temporal punishment. And we have to pause a moment and define our terms because punishment doesn't necessarily mean what you think it means in this case. In this case, it's not necessarily something that God acts out on us out of vengeance or anger, but it's also generally just the, the natural consequence of sin. And so this this penance again it's not about earning our salvation it's not earning anything but it's about healing. And I think you know this idea of penance while we may not have necessarily all in white people have not necessarily intentionally been racist but we have all taken part in white privilege to a greater or lesser extent, generally speaking. And I think we can't quite maybe get over that if we don't do a penance mm. of sorts for that. And it's it's a hard thing to talk about because, you know, it's such harsh language. You right. need to do penance. You need to get down on your knees and flagellate yourself. But penance is also about making amends. If you confess that you stole something, your priest will probably tell you, all right, great, you're forgiven, but you still need to go back and pay for what you stole, for mm-hmm. what you stole. You need to go make amends. I broke my friend's computer, all right, you need to go fix that. It's not because that earns your forgiveness, but it's part of the healing, right. and that needs to be done. And But again, we have to, going back again, we have to remember we're not going to find some big, umbrella solution. We have to really look at the immediate situations in our lives. And this is one final thing I want to touch on. I've been fascinated by one of the things in these recent protests is what people say, defund the police, defund the police. My gut reaction is like, that's absurd. Like what? We could never live in a society where there's no police. But then I was reading something a friend posted about what exactly that means. And they're saying, they're not saying completely defund the police immediately, maybe get to that goal. But they were saying how 
what should be done at first is at least cut some of their budget. Police don't need things like armored vehicles and military-grade weapons. And then turn that budget into something to help the local community. Build more counselors, build more shelters, and also give the money to people that work there that are from that local community because yeah. it's those people that understand that community and like, yeah, I that's think the subsidiarianism. I, yes, I think the idea is it's not police are evil, get rid of them and become anarchists. I think the well, idea... Well, for some of them it is. Yeah, <laughs> for some of them. But I don't think that's the idea behind. The idea is we don't, like you said, we don't need police-grade weapons. We don't need multi-million dollar budgets and salaries. Mm-hmm. What we need is the ability to have systems in place where the local governments, nonprofits, NGOs, et cetera, can do things to stop homelessness, to stop crime, mm-hmm. to stop ignorance and, and illiteracy, you know, all the things that pre- ultimately lead mm-hmm. to a life of shame and crime and incarceration. Mm-hmm. We can stop those things by taking some of that money instead of like dealing with them harshly when they're old, when they're older and they do something wrong intercept them at the local level mm-hmm, when mm-hmm. they're kids and when absolutely you know, and that's where the money should be going so yeah. that's a radical idea you're right but it fits right in what you're saying about it's something the catholic church has been saying for 100 years yeah. <laughs> the catholic church religion in this country early on they're the ones that built the hospitals. They're yeah. the ones that built the yeah. universities. They're yep. the ones that built, you know, if you go around to any any city in this country, you still have St. John's and St. Jude's mm-hmm. and Baptist mm-hmm. Hospital and the First Presbyterian Hospital. I mean, that's mm-hmm. a given, but we've lost that. We've mm-hmm. lost that, like, priority, mm-hmm. that prioritization of where those funds go mm-hmm. to. Mm-hmm. So interesting. This has been a, f- a fascinating conversation, Alex. Yeah. Thank you for taking the time. Yeah, thank um, you. I'm sure that went far oh, longer than it's fine. It's fine. We can we can edit if we need to. But you touched on touched on a lot of great things. So thank you for your time. Well, thank I you. This appreciate fantastic. your openness. And um, absolutely, will be fascinating to see what the future holds for you. When are you planning on going back to China? Whenever they let me back in. Okay. Um, right now, all visas have been. All visas and residence permits before March or so have been temporarily suspended. They've been issuing some visas on very rare occasions afterwards, but but my visa, my residence permit is temporarily suspended. So I don't know. Okay. And it's it's anybody's guess. But you're teaching still online, right? You're mm-hmm. working? Yeah, this week is my last week of classes, thankfully. Okay. Yeah. It's been rough because most of my classes have been at like 9 p.m. I mean, they're in the morning there, but I've had a couple classes that are 1.30 to like 3 or something like that. Mm. Oh, good. Well, yeah. we're glad you got to stay here for a little while. And uh, Yeah, we'll, me too. Uh, thanks for coming by. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Talk to you soon. Yep. Yeah.